Find Philippians 2 in your copy of the Scripture, please. Philippians 2. It amazes me that the holidays are already upon us again. My goodness. How time flies. And you know, folks, as we get ready to go into the holiday season in a few weeks with uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, psychologists tell us that while supposedly one of the most joyous times of the year, it is anything but that for many people around us. In fact, it's a time of the year that depression rates soar, uh, prescriptions being filled for that, families split up, marriages split up, Family battles and fights occur, and even suicides are at a high during this time of the year. Much of it's added to the, uh, much of it's accounted to the added stress of the holiday season. We're a stressed out society. And then you add on to that all the stress of the holidays, and it's a breaking point for many people. Now, to me, it's so sad when you think about what Thanksgiving and Christmas are supposed to be, you know? Think of the theological significance of this time of the year. Uh, Even sociological implications of this time of the year. It ought to be a time of gratitude and peace and joy. And those are virtues that ought to be bred and accentuated, and yet we as a society have made this time of year anything but what it's supposed to be. And don't you hate walking in the stores even before uh, Halloween? And Christmas stuff is already out. Holidays now are just big business, right? And we've been duped by the advertisers and retailers and it's our fault because we've let it happen Connie and I started doing something a couple of years ago and nothing new to many of you you're already doing this we draw names at Christmas and we only buy one or two gifts for for the names we've instead of buying it for everybody Just one or two gifts and dollar limits. And it is amazing the stress level going down from just doing that. Now, I can assure you that rule of thumb will not apply this year to the grandbaby. Okay? I I promise you that. But I digress. <laughs> let me get back to my introduction. <laughs> Folks, let's not let the stress of the holidays negatively affect our family relationships or our church relationships. Hopefully, both your family and the church can be an oasis. And hopefully, our relationships with one another can be a model to society. You know, Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to look at this passage with me. We're going to talk today about peace for the holidays and beyond in your relationships. 
And he's going to lay down some principles in the first four verses. And then in verses 5 through 11, he's going to give the ultimate example of the principles that he's just laid down in the first four verses. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Father, we're so grateful for this passage that tells us so much about the Lord Jesus. One of the richest passages in the entire New Testament on the incarnation. And how Jesus' example by coming in the flesh and dying, humbling himself. And not exploiting or grasping his divine rights, even though he could have. What an example that is for us. Lord, as Jason prayed in his prayer, help us to be a unified people, ever more so, in our families and our workplaces and society. Help us to be salt and light that will spread that. That we will serve others. That we will put ourselves out of the way and look after others. Lord, may we do that especially at this time of the year when so many people are hurting. May we be an encouragement to them. And through that encouragement, we can be a witness as we then go on to tell them the good news. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Some years ago in Dallas, Texas, there was a church that became so divided that each side actually instituted lawsuits against one another. Even though the Bible says that believers in a church shouldn't be taking one another to court. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, take the loss yourself. 
Don't take your disputes before secular judges. Let the church do that. And so the the secular judges in Dallas did a wise thing. The judge said, we're not going to hear this case until you have first of all had some sort of denominational or church court to settle this dispute. Well, one side decided they would just withdraw and form another church nearby. Well, the denomination did look into it. They had a court. They looked into everything. And they found out that the dispute that had caused all of this started at a church dinner where an elder noticed that his slice of ham on his plate was not as large as the slice of ham on a child's plate that it was at, who was at the table beside him. I kid you not. Leslie Flynn in his book, Great Church Fights, quotes a story from a Welch newspaper. It was about a church looking for a new pastor. And there were opposition groups in the church. Each side presented their candidate. On the same day, both candidates got up to the pulpit to preach their trial sermon. Each one began their sermon at the same time and tried to outshout the other one. The congregation got in an uproar with one another. The, the, the floor of the church broke out in a brawl. Fist fights. A deacon had to call the police department in to break it up. The church got together and decided they would have a, a peacemaking meeting later on. And that meeting likewise broke up in a brawl. Folks, is that not the saddest thing in the world to read about a sanctuary turned into a boxing ring? Sad to say, experiences like that have been all too common in church history. You know, churches can be attacked from the outside. And nine times out of ten, a church body will draw together and be stronger. Paul's addressed that at the end of chapter 1. And how they are to come together against all the attacks of their culture. But churches can divide from the inside. Chapter 4 of Philippians clues us into the fact that there were two women not getting along in the church. And apparently other members were being drawn into that face-off. Paul calls out those two women by name. Poor ladies. Can you imagine your name going down in a book of the Bible and being recorded for all of history and not for good reasons? Poor ladies. So what does Paul do? What does he do here in chapter 2? Well, by precept and example, he tells the church to stop doing what they're doing in their selfishness and put others first. Now folks, I felt led to preach this message at this time of the year because again, it's the time of the year that the church has the opportunity to be salt and light to members of the community. What should unbelievers see in us? What should they expect from us? And what should we expect from one another? 
No congregation ever grows beyond the need to practice these verses. Even a church like Pitts Baptist Church that has a history, a long history of unity and peace and love. Even a congregation like this never grows beyond the need to hear verses like this. Because we're fallen human beings. It's a daily challenge. And so, look at what he says here. Take notes if you can find something to write on. I want to point out, first of all, that joy, joy comes from seeing believers unified around the gospel. Joy comes from seeing believers unified around the gospel. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. One of the highlights of the early church was their love for one another. Jesus had said at the end of John's gospel, John 13, By this will the world know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. But how do we do that? How do we relate to one another? How do we love one another? How do we keep peace and fellowship with one another? In our families, in our churches, how does it work? Notice what Paul goes on to say here. Be of the same mind. We need common convictions. I suppose that's the first hallmark of a biblical fellowship. We're united around the same biblical beliefs. Folks, we're not Hindus. We're not Muslims. We're not Buddhists. We're Christians. We have common convictions about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is it that gives us those convictions? It is the Word of God. We will never be alike when it comes to opinions or preferences. We will never be alike in that regard. Such things will never provide the rallying point that we need. But the Word of God will. There are some common convictions that all evangelical Christians down through the centuries have have held to. Things like the sovereignty of God, the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the eternal lostness of man apart from Christ, salvation through Christ alone, the necessity of repentance and faith and the new birth, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the essentiality of of missions. Christians have always rallied around those things. You know, we'll differ on a lot of other secondary issues. For example, this morning we've seen the ordinance of baptism being carried out. We know even among evangelical churches... While we believe the the essence of baptism and what's being demonstrated there, churches have some different ways of of doing it. Baptists believe in, in believer's baptism. And we believe in baptism by immersion. 
And that being a picture of the gospel, the person being lowered into the water, symbolic of being joined to Christ's death, and they're dying to their old ways, and being raised up to, to be joined to the resurrection of Christ, and they're raised to walk in newness of life. And, and so there's reasons why we do that, but folks, there are other Bible-believing Christians that do a few things differently with baptism. The Lord's Supper. Churches will hold to different things about the elements and what's going on there. The Protestant reformers disagreed vehemently about some of the things surrounding the Lord's Supper. We disagree on spiritual gifts. We may disagree on the order of end time events. And so there are some of these issues that even Bible-believing Christians down through the ages have disagreed about. But you know what? What's essential is that, that we hold to the essentials. That's the important thing. And that's what Paul is telling them here to be of the same mind in that regard. To, to have these common convictions. And then he says, be of the same love. Here's another rallying point for Christians. We have a common love. What is it? It's love for Christ. We don't embrace just a religious system. We embrace Christ. We love Christ. And because of that, we love those born of Christ. We love the brethren and we're to love the things of God. We love what God loves, hates, hate what God hates. That's what we're to do. Do we love the brethren? Do we love the things of God? Do we love what God loves? Paul goes on to say, be of the same spirit and purpose. We should literally be spirit with spirit, he says here, or joined in soul. The Greek text says, joined in soul around one purpose. And that is to magnify and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And then we have the purpose of the Great Commission, don't we? To go into all the world. That's a rallying point. Now note, notice that not only do we have these admonitions and instructions being given by Paul, but he gives the motivation behind acting like this. Behind acting with one mind, one love, one spirit and purpose. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Those things he mentions there, that's the motivations. For what he goes on to say in verses 2 and 3 and 4. He says if there's any encouragement in Christ. And the Greek construction that if takes on the meaning since. He's not saying if these things have happened to you. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying since they have happened. The first one is encouragement in Christ. And, and the word that he uses for an encouragement here is the same word or same kind of related word used of, of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us and strengthens us and encourages us. He's saying that's what the Lord does. Have you had that experience? The Lord coming alongside of you 
and encouraging you and helping you? Sure you have. You know what it's like to have that happen? Perhaps you were going through a trial in your life and the Lord, the Lord laid uh, something on somebody's heart to come and see you and help you and you were helped by that. The Lord was working through that person to come alongside of you and help you. And in the inner man, the Lord himself through the power of his spirit has done that for you. And Paul is saying because you've had that experience, you need to turn around and be encouragers to others. Be a blessing to others. What you have received from the Lord, you need to give to others. Jesus gave an illustration about that concerning another matter, concerning forgiveness in Matthew 18, talking about a guy who had been forgiven of like a $20 million debt, something he could never pay back. And yet he would not go out and forgive a fellow servant $20. And Jesus condemned that. That was a person who did not have the heart of the king. We are to display the heart of the king. What he's given to us, we're to give to other people. That's what we're to do with encouragement. Then he mentions, has there been any comfort from love? Has has it ever done you any good in the midst of of a valley to understand that God loves you? You may not like what you're going through at a time, but you know that as God's child... Anything that comes into your life has first of all been sifted through his loving fingers. And whatever happens in your life is ultimately for your good. Romans 8.28 tells us that. That God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. We're comforted by that. To know that God loves us so much that whatever he allows to come into our lives... He's using it for our good. He has a purpose in it. We don't deserve that kind of love. But that's what the cross is all about, right? God doesn't do what he does for people who deserve it. We're undeserving sinners. Then he mentions any participation in the Spirit. You and I enjoy participation in the Holy Spirit. He's with us. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the church. Every every time somebody becomes a believer, what happens? When they become a believer, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have participation in the Spirit as the body of Christ. And we're told wherever two or three are gathered together in His name, He's with us. Participation in the Spirit. Finally, by way of motivation, Paul mentions any affection and sympathy. This is an expression that goes well with love. Not only does God love us, but he has an affection and a sympathy. In other words, God's love is not disconnected. It's not remote. It's not cold. It's up close and personal. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so our love for the brethren is to be up close and personal, not disconnected and distant. 
And so again, folks, all of those are the motivations Paul gives for living out the unity, the commands in verse 2. It's because you've experienced all of these things that he goes on to say, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, secondly, this morning I want you to see that joy comes from seeing maturity in believers. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Boy, now that's maturity, isn't it? He admonishes them to lay down a spirit of rivalry and conceit and do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. We know what it is to be selfish. The the word for conceit is vainglory. Having too much of an opinion of ourselves. Being selfish and then having too much an, an opinion of ourselves. I like what was written about President Grant, Ulysses uh, S. Grant on one occasion, he was being invited to a reception and the reception was to honor him. He was going to that reception and there was a rainstorm. He put up a large umbrella and there was a stranger came alongside of him and he, and he covered that uh, stranger and the stranger likewise was going to the reception too. And the strangers, this was in the age where you didn't have all the facial recognition of all the media out there. And this stranger didn't know that this was the president. And he said, you know what? I've, all, I've always thought that the president, uh, he's overrated. <laughs> and Grant said, you know what? I totally agree. I totally agree. He didn't have too high an opinion of himself. Far too many people today have much too high an opinion of themselves. And Paul was talking here about how that can hurt a family or fellowship. They were to look after one another. They were to go even so far as putting others ahead of them. Considering others more important than you. One tragic thing we see in the world today is that everybody is demanding their needs to be met. We see it in marriages. Everybody's to meet my needs. One of the things that's so revolutionary about the Christian faith and instructions to marriage is in that the husband is to look after the needs of the wife, the wife after the needs of the husband. Guess what? Everybody's needs are looked after. And because your mate is looking after your needs, you love them any more. You love them even more for doing that. But if on the other hand, everyone is selfish and wanting their own needs met, then bitterness happens. The Bible tells us that we are to pursue the type of attitude that he's talking about here in verses 3 and 4. And and this is Christian maturity. Christian maturity. 
Not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Counting others more significant than yourselves. Looking after others. Putting others first. Think with me a moment about children. What do little children say? Mine. 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 You try to take something away from a little child and what will they do? They'll pitch a temper tantrum. That's a sign of immaturity. We teach children as they get older to learn to share with others and look out for others. That's a sign of maturity. And so in a church body, when we see our brothers and sisters in need, we are to busy ourselves about meeting their needs. When we see ministries in need, we are to busy ourselves about meeting those needs. And so if the youth are working on a mission project and we can help them, then it's a sign of maturity to come around them and do what we can to help them. Or if the seniors have a mission trip, same thing. Or if children need help, same thing. Folks, that's a sign of a healthy and a happy church. But most importantly, it's the sign of a holy and a mature church. The consumer mentality that's so rampant today in society is so unhealthy. And just about any pastor out there will tell you how they're seeing that consumer mentality come into the church. Rather than working to make their church family what it could be, they, they say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and get what I'm looking for and then my kids will go over here my wife will go over here and everybody's going around to different places looking for their needs and what they want and it divides the church it hurts the church it hurts that family it's a never ending thing this consumer mentality today that we see all around us in society Everybody trying to get what they want. Where can I go and what can I do to get my needs met? So people will look after me. It's like little children. It never ceases to amaze me too how even grown men and women in big positions at work will come into a church family and the least little thing happens they don't agree with they'll go somewhere else they'll take their toys and go home folks I am not talking about doctrinal issues if somebody's a member of a church and they're not preaching the word they need to get out and get somewhere preaching the word but I'm talking about these little Selfish things related to consumer mentality. Let me give you an example of somebody. Unless you've been here longer than six years, this isn't going to mean anything to you, and I apologize. I rarely do this, folks. I rarely do. I rarely call somebody out by name. But those of us who've been here around a while... Remember the name, Carol Taylor. He was such a gentle soul. 
He knew what he believed. I never saw him bend on doctrine. But he could be in a committee where he didn't get his way. He'd leave the committee or the church conference. And maybe he didn't agree with the decision. But then if that's the way it went, he would work alongside of folks to get it done. And he would even pay for it. That's maturity. And that's what Paul is saying here. And the church family, don't, don't think about yourself. Think about others. Don't have too high of an opinion of yourself. Be humble and, and put others even above you. Notice he says here, not even equal to you. He's saying put others and their needs even ahead of yourself in your needs. Folks, I want you to just think with me how that could absolutely revolutionize a church or a society. And that's what folks ought to see as they come into a church fellowship. And and folks, I, I want to commend you because largely for the most part, I've seen you living out these verses. You wouldn't believe some of the silly stuff though I hear going on out there in churches. And how pastors are just so grieved by the childishness and the selfishness that they see. And this social media generation, it has accentuated it all even more. Paul is saying in the church, we're to be men and women. We're not to be like little children. We're to be men and women and we are to grow up. Amen? Quit thinking about yourself. Then thirdly, he points out joy comes from seeing people imitate Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Deferring to one another is not the way of the world. But we're not to be like the world. We're to have the mind of Christ. Now, I personally like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Without getting down into the weeds, there's a little bit of a translation issue of what to do with the verb and the placement of the verb in verse 5. And translators have to wrestle with these issues because a lot of times one language doesn't translate perfectly into another language. And so the different translations deal with verse 5 a bit differently. The ESV that I read from translates it theologically. It says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The idea is because of your union with Jesus Christ, you already have the mind of Christ. And that is certainly true. No doubt about it, that's true. But other translations translate it from the ethical angle have this mind in you 
which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're to imitate Christ. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's talking about imitation. They are to be like Christ. Because he's giving Christ here in these verses as the perfect example, the ideal example of what he has just spoken of. And so again, others others say adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I think that's best. What did Jesus do? Jesus did not selfishly hang on to what was already his by divine right. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Folks, Jesus was already God. He's, never, he's always been God. He's never ceased being God. There was never a time that He was not. And there's never a time that He wasn't God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Christ is eternal from eternity past to eternity future. That blows your mind, doesn't it? But what did he do in the incarnation? He took on flesh. He came as a man. Fully God, fully man. Two natures in one essence. He wasn't two persons. Two two natures in one essence. That's very important. First 400 years of the church, there were all kinds of heresies about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Most of the early church councils and creeds, they were having to hammer out what the Bible says about the person of Christ because there were so many heretics coming out and attacking the person of Christ. If you don't think that's important, you will learn how important that is when the Mormon or the Jehovah Witness knocks on your door and you try to talk to them about Jesus and who he is. But Paul says here that Jesus didn't grasp. He didn't hold on to to all the rights and the privileges that he had. Again, the Christian Standard Bible says he didn't exploit the fact that he was and is God, God in the flesh. Now, folks, if you want to talk about somebody who could have stood on their rights, it would have been Jesus. He could have stood on his rights, and guess what? He would have been justified in doing so because he's God. But what did he do? He emptied himself. And I don't have time to get into the discussion here what he emptied himself of. But I can tell you he certainly did not empty himself of being God the Son. For the sake of brevity, just think with me a moment of all the glory and all the adulation that Jesus enjoyed in heaven. Think of the worship of the angels. Just think of all the glory and praise that was his in heaven. And in the incarnation, what did he do? Without giving up who he was, he took on flesh. That in and of itself for the Son of God was an act of humility. He stepped out of the perfections of heaven 
all the perfections and the glory and praise that he enjoyed there. And he came into a sin-sick world. And folks, think of the way he came. He didn't even come as a king or an emperor. In the incarnation, he could have come as a king of the most powerful kingdom. He didn't do that. He could have come as a full-grown man. He didn't do that. How did he come? He came as a little babe in a manger in Bethlehem. In a nowhere place, an out-of-the-way place to a poor couple. It's astonishing to think of the way he came in the incarnation. Folks, you don't get any more humble than what Jesus did. And he came as a servant. And he died. And he died as a criminal on a cross, though he had done no wrong. Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian, who assisted people years ago in committing suicide, commented years ago on the death of Jesus. He said, Do you think it's dignified to hang from wood with nails through your hands and feet? Had Jesus Christ died in my van, it would have been more dignified. Well, what Jack Kevorkian didn't understand was that Jesus didn't come to die a dignified death. He came to die a horrible death for you and me. These verses are so theologically rich. Everything about the incarnation was humbling. Jesus gave up his rights and he died a death he did not deserve. Folks, you see what Paul is doing here in these verses? He's telling people in the church, do you really want to stand on your rights? Do you really want to talk about what you deserve or what you need or what you want or your preferences? Do you really want to do that? If you do, then you certainly don't have the mind of Christ. He's saying, folks, it's time that we have the mind of Christ and humble ourselves. Jesus did that and the Father exalted him. It's not that he wasn't exalted because he was. It's the Father who exalted him. He humbled himself without standing on his rights. And the Father exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. A lot of discussion about that name. Probably just means in addition to, to Jesus, he's Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the bright and morning star. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and the prince of peace. The name that is above every name. And Paul says that his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Some will do it willingly and eagerly before the, before the Lord says to them, Welcome home, my child. Some will do it reluctantly. Just before hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you. But, Paul says, 
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. You think of all those in society today that rail against the name of Jesus and despise the name of Jesus and they mock you and me for what we believe, there will be a day that they will have to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. But again, the point is, Jesus didn't stand on his own rights. The Father has done that for him by exalting him. And so if you're going to adopt the mindset of Christ, don't worry about your life, uh, your rights. Don't worry about your needs. Humble yourself and do what you do for other people. Even if you don't get what you think you deserve. And guess what? God will set the record straight one day. The only thing you and I need to worry about is simply humbling ourselves and looking after others. There's a a well-known fable. A fable, okay? It's about a man named Walter who went to work for the largest corporation in the world. He started in the mailroom and he worked hard. He dreamed of being a big-time executive and having enormous power and wealth one day. And in the mailroom one day, he saw a little mouse over in the corner. And he was going to go over to that mouse and kill the mouse. And the mouse said, sir, don't kill me. I'm Milton. And if you will spare me, I will grant you all of your wishes. Walter's first wish was to leave the mailroom and become a vice president. So Milton granted the... Uh, Milton granted that wish to Walter. In fact, Milton granted wish after wish until finally Walter was the chairman of the board of the largest corporation of the world. He had the penthouse office and the skyscraper up on the top floor. Everyone looked up to Walter. Walter was conceited and said, I'm Walter. And I'm at the top. Nobody is more important than me. And one day in his penthouse office, he heard steps on the roof above him. He wasn't aware that any workmen would come that day and do anything. So he went up on the roof and there was a child up there playing. When he got up there though, the child was kneeling and praying. And he said, son, who are you praying to? Are you praying to Walter? Well, I'm Walter. Son, I'll give you whatever you need. And he said, no, sir, I'm not praying to Walter. I'm praying to God. Walter crossed his hands, frowned, walked downstairs and found Milton the mouse. Told Milton the mouse what was going on. And he said, you said you'd grant any wish. Milton said, yes. Well, I want to be like God. The next day he was down in the mailroom where he had started. (laughs) 
humility. Would you bow with me? Folks, the answer for all the division that we see in the world today is to be a servant. Put God and others first. If we'll just do that, we'll see a radical difference in our families and in our churches. I want you to think about your home. Husbands, fathers, are you serving your family? Are you looking after their needs? Wives, children, everybody humbling themselves, considering the other person more important than themselves. Think about what that can do in your family. As we get ready to go into Thanksgiving and then Christmas, just think about what's at the heart of these holidays. It ought to be a time of peace and gratitude and of of others. Life is not about you and me and what we can acquire for ourselves, what we can achieve. It's about Christ and others. Practice serving others and giving and removing yourself from the equation and just see what happens. You may be amazed. Think about your Sunday school class. Think about your ministry group at church. Think about your family. Have the mind of Christ. And then when visitors come in here at Christmas, what are they going to see? John 13, where Jesus said, All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know what they'll see? They'll see there's a church where God's in their midst because they're so radically different than the world. Father, thank you what Jesus did for us. He gave up what he did not have to. He humbled himself and he died. He died for us. He put us first. The Lord of glory stepped out of heaven, came to a sin-darkened world, and put us first. May we emulate Him. Help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, there is so much. I have never seen the world as divided Every day when I see stuff on the internet, on news pages, and all the hatred, all the gossip, all the division, and everything going on on social media where people comment and they get angry and they pile on, Lord, help us to never be a part of that. May we be like Jesus.
We pray in his name. Amen.